You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. If there's anything that we should look at as the enemy, as a structural enemy to life on this earth, it's monoculture. Because we need to really keep in mind that an absolute principle of life is diversity. Every single cell, every single moment in life is unique. The cells in our bodies, in every leaf, in everything that lives, are not only unique, but changing. In this episode, we welcome Helena Norberg-Hodge, who is now a repeat guest of Green Dreamer since we first spoke with her a few years ago. Helena is a linguist, author, and filmmaker, and the founder and director of the international nonprofit Local Futures, which is a pioneer of the new economy movement and the convener of World Localization Day. She's the author of several books, including Ancient Futures, Learning from Ladakh, Local is our future, steps to an economics of happiness, and more. Helena is also the producer of the award-winning documentary, The Economics of Happiness. Her work spanning almost half a century has received the support of a wide range of international figures, and she's also helped to initiate localization movements on every continent. I think one of the more important issues here is that if we're only voting, as it were, with our consumer dollars, it means that rich people have many more votes than poor people. Mm. And when I started my work, almost all environmentalists were aware that we needed policy change. In other words, we needed to shift how our taxes were spent to support unecological and, of course, very large-scale extractive industries and we wanted to shift that towards more decentralized and and ecological ways of doing things which brings with it also the the rebuilding and the restructuring of community so i would like people to think more about that i would like people to think about having their voice heard in as it were a more political way but it means going beyond party politics The party politics we've had almost from the outset have never looked at this relationship between humanity and the living earth and have not been clear about how we need to shift to protect a healthy and genuinely sustainable relationship with the earth. So in terms of the activities that we want to encourage, we encourage two main directions. One of them is to try to link up in the area, wherever you live, even in a big city, try to identify a few like-minded people so you can form a bit of a group, a hub, can change the I to a we, and then look at what can we do as activists to try to support, build, or protect 
systems that are healthier. And they will be almost everywhere in the world when you look. You will find that the good things that are restoring biodiversity, bringing health and joy back to people at the same time, are human scale. They are small. They mean generally also an ability to slow down. And they're about rebuilding the community fabric, a fabric where we know the person who's growing our food or the person who's helped to make the furniture even or to build the house that we live in. These more personal relationships actually do, almost without exception, tend to reduce prejudice, blindness. You know, when you put a label on people of these people are... Catholic, these people are Protestant, these people are Muslim, you know, these people are black and these people are white. So all these labels are labels that come about when we don't have a more intimate, ongoing relationship with people. So in that way, the when you really start rebuilding genuinely local economies, they won't be these extractive businesses because what we're talking about is, as I say, more human-scale businesses. Now, where people can get confused is you could have a giant chicken factory farm, you know, in your local area, and then you call that local. And see, the whole point of what we're trying to do is to say we're not talking about individual local businesses. We're talking about a local system. So we're talking about shortening the distances between producer and consumer, and between the producers and the natural resources. And once you start rebuilding more localized systems, they are almost without exception going to be kinder to the environment and kinder to people structurally. Maybe one more thing to say about that. I've seen again and again how motivating it is for a a business or, a, or an individual, you know, a developer who's living in a community and then starting to do some kind of investment in that community. When they get praise and affirmation from the community, they are motivated to do the right thing. When they're investing on the other side of the world or even hundreds of miles away and they don't even see the impact of what they do and and no one else sees the impact of what they do, that's when you get much more irresponsible, destructive development. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, and certainly I can envision this form of localism that you refer to just involving and enabling more accountability when people are just closer to the sources of everything that they engage with. And a lot of these activities become avenues of building trust and building relationships at this more human scale level so that maybe we can reach a point where things like certifications aren't even needed anymore because we can witness and feel these things in a more intimate way. One of the key things that I've kept with me after our last conversation was this idea that there are different forms of poverty. And I remember you telling me about how you witnessed the land-based communities of Ladakh being detrimentally impacted by economic globalization in all sorts of ways, from their community relations to pollution, with the increasing need for refrigeration and packaged foods, to their senses of scarcity and insecurity that they not, had not had before. And 
I also remember you pointing out that while some communities could on paper look like they are doing better in terms of their average daily wages going up, if that coincides with people formerly with more subsistence and local economies being integrated and kind of consumed into market economies tethered to global capitalism, then that increase in wage does not necessarily equate with an improvement in their quality of life. And all of this really challenges organizations and institutions that use the reductive measures of financial figures in order to determine poverty or well-being. So I guess the question that I've been sitting with is that if part of the problem has been this reduction of the diverse forms of richness and relational wealth and more than monetary currencies into economies that privilege that representational currency at the cost of anything and everything else, then could this also imply that in some ways, not always, but in some ways that the work of rebuilding rooted communities actually cannot be bought or invested in through fundraising or philanthropy? Or do you think that at large people have become so consumed and incorporated into the global market economies that the work of rebuilding local economies and community also is contingent on economic injustice at the larger scale being addressed first. No, I think actually it's a very interesting question this because I now know a number of people who were talking about investing in eco-villages and mm-hmm. someone I was in touch with, you know, was planning to do hundreds of eco-villages and as an investor, and I have been part of this global eco-village network, which was trying to support, which was a philanthropist trying to support the bottom-up communities that had been created by the people themselves who were living in these communities. And that is the, that's a really determining factor between something that can really work and that's something that's healthy and something that's going to be sort of dead and, and there's sort of, yeah, it has a, it's dead, it's dead and it tends to it tends to standardize. It tends to, of course, you know, it's coming from someone outside. Remember, whenever anyone invests, the whole point is I'm putting in money in order to extract more than I put in. Mm. That's what investment is about. So we should actually, today, we really need a discussion about philanthropy as opposed to investment. One of the things that's going on right now is that a lot of the philanthropy is actually coming from foundations that are linked to the whole profit-making machinery, and the philanthropy that they employ is actually pulling people into dependence on the dominant growth economy. So we have to distinguish between you know the type of philanthropy that we're talking about. So even if it's not an investment, but coming as philanthropy can still be something that we should be wary of. However, I would urge people not to think that the the way to go now is straight into a gift economy, or even to think, you know, let's just do time dollars or our own local currency. I say that because of, you know, 50 years experience virtually now and seeing that what's happened with the attempt to go straight to a gift economy or let's or a genuinely local currency, it just hasn't worked because it's extremely difficult to get people so unplugged from the dominant economy that they can just 
leap into this other world. And one of the main reasons for that is that you need significant numbers in order to have a fabric, an economic fabric around you that can really work. It's just very difficult if you go out, you know, even with 10 or even 100 families to try to live off the land on your own. Now, I would... I would not say that people shouldn't try that, but I want them to try it with a, a more sophisticated, a more global understanding of the global system. They need to understand about the regulations. They need to understand about the heavy subsidies in the opposite direction and the psychological pressure, particularly on young people, to join the dominant narrative and the dominant consumer culture. I'm probably being very wordy now, but I want to come back to say that when a group of people now that are, you know, I'm working with many different local groups, if they want to try to start taking those steps to rebuild a local economy, local community fabric, I would urge them now to think about trying to find philanthropists who might be willing to support that bottom-up genuinely, you know, community-led way of doing things because we have to realize that we're swimming in this heavily, heavily subsidized and over-regulated, well, actually the other way around, the heavily subsidized system is completely deregulated. So the Amazons and the Monsantos have no rules, heavily subsidized, and as we try to do things as individuals or local businesses or even at the national level, any place-based business is suffering from these huge handicaps of heavy regulations and heavy taxation. So we're in a completely unfair playing field. So we should recognize that in order to kickstart and get things really going, we need a different type of subsidy. It shouldn't be an investment. But if it's genuinely aiding the creation of more self-reliant and ecological, community-based ways of doing things, let's welcome that money. And I also just want to add to that that many groups who can afford it are starting to raise money among themselves once they realize. I was just talking to a group last night, actually, in Sydney, and they're They've been meeting regularly, they've been inspired by our film, and they really, and they found it very nurturing to connect spiritually, socially, psychologically. It's been really nourishing. But they found as they try to do practical projects, like getting a community garden started and so on, it's been very difficult and very slow. And what I'm urging with people like that is if they can afford it, try to pool some money to employ someone who can actually then, you know, have a wage from within the mainstream currency to help get things started. And for instance, yeah, here where I live in Byron Bay too, we need more farmers markets. I've helped to start four. And we need more diversified small farms to feed this region. But again, to get it started, we really need someone working full-time or half-time anyway, identifying the various opportunities, the land, the landowners who might be willing to have part of their land shifted, who might be willing to welcome some young farmers. And yeah, so 
There's so much that could be done and needs to be done, but it does need some funding in most cases. And it can work really well if you use the national currency as it is now. Once you set up more localized structures and things have really created closer relationships, then it would be easier to shift to a local currency. Hmm. There are certainly a lot of systemic barriers, and it's very difficult to just hit exit when we're currently most people are so entangled. And unfortunately, it's also a challenge when we consider current trajectories of land ownership and the erosion of the commons. And certainly there are some people occupying unused land and using them for community gardens and so forth. But most other people have to have a certain level of economic security and economic resources to be able to purchase land and then contribute that towards more community serving purposes. So yeah, just it's definitely necessary still for most people to work within the existing system in order to create cracks for other ways of being and building community. And just from engaging with the content that Local Futures puts out, I know that your organization has been keen on pushing back against this conclusion that it's what you eat, not how far it travels that matters. Because if that were true, then it kind of puts into question the whole premise of Local Futures. And I can personally say just from my initial impressions, I already am troubled by overgeneralized conclusions that don't take into account context and nuance because as an example, a lot of the environmental impact assessments that fixate on what types of food are quote unquote more environmentally friendly or not start off with this presumption that all landscapes and all terrains and all climates are the same. So the more water something uses, the worse it is. The more land something uses, the worse it is. The more fertilizer input something needs, the worse it is. But, you know, we have rainforests that are too wet for the crops that actually can't tolerate that constant wetness and humidity. We have drylands that are too dry for other species that need more water. We have terrains with different soil ecology and composition. And we have landscapes that have different life cycles and speed in which that process of decay can regenerate compost and fertilizer. So that's, of course, the first thing that stood out to me as the idea of environmental impact being overgeneralized and problematic when they're completely decontextualized. But that aside, or with this in mind, I'm curious how you would address this point that it's the what that matters and not where or how far they are brought in and imported from. Well, the, the thing we need to realize is that the distance that food travels is related to the foundations of the modern economy, which, again, if we look back, what happened was that traders that were able to push people off the land through force, we're talking slavery, we're talking genocide, so that people were pushed away from producing or, or harvesting, hunting, gathering food from their region for their own needs. A diversity of foods, it's maybe not a huge diversity, but actually the more now that archaeologists are even looking at early hunter-gatherers and so on, they're finding an amazing diversity and what looks like very healthy people. So we have to completely rethink we have to rethink agriculture completely, and we have to do that in the light of the modern economy that started with slavery, genocide, and 
later colonialism, and then the modern thinking, the foundation of the economy is comparative advantage. This is the idea that it's in your interest to specialize for export. Don't waste time trying to grow cherries in Scotland. You know, you can grow oats really well. Just focus on oats, export those, and then import what you need. Well, in a certain way, that can make sense. It sounds quite logical. But we don't realize that it was brought in hand in hand with an extractive system where global traders were able to amass wealth. And that in the process of encouraging this, moving away from self-reliance, they were encouraging monoculture. So if there's anything that we should look at as their enemy, as a structural enemy to life on this earth, it's monoculture. Because we need to really keep in mind that an absolute principle of life is diversity. Every single cell, every single moment in life is unique. The cells in our bodies, in every leaf, in everything that lives, are not only unique, but changing. So they're not even the same moment to moment. So when you talk about context, remember how important local knowledge is, because local knowledge systems that evolved as people lived in those different ecosystems you were talking about, in drylands, in wetlands, in the rainforest, those knowledge systems were knowledge about that complex living life all around them. The complexity meant also that people were so much more humble, so much more aware of the power and the constant change and process in the natural world. What happened with the modern economy was at the same time modern science that we do need to look at critically. We cannot today dismiss science or technology and or you know, money is another technology, and I'm saying we can't just say, let's just exit. We're not having anything to do with science, technology, or the technology of money. No, we're, we're embedded in it. It's now very much part of our lives, but we need to step back and look at it honestly, critically, and look at what are the real avenues of healing, the real avenues of the sort of knowledge that we need to regain health, our own health and the health of the planet. And that has very much to do with recognizing the damage that was done. And so when you ask me about distances, what I'm saying is that the distances, the distant market naturally imposes monoculture. A distant market will be centralized. It will be incapable of saying, oh, okay, so today you can have some lettuce that you deliver to the farmer's market and a few apples or whatever it might be. The distant market has forever imposed monoculture and today worse than ever. So therefore the distances are of fundamental importance and there's this structural link between shortening the distance between the land and the market and the localized market actually encourages, creates economic pressure on the producer, whether it's in fishery or forestry or farming, towards diversification. If they can diversify, they'll do better. Mm. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point that centralized systems tend to drive processes of simplification and homogenization and localized systems can better support the opposite trends. And I think what's also really key to bring in here is I believe trade is not even accounted for in each country's emissions that the climate conferences try to address and seek to rein in. And you can correct me if I'm mistaken in that, but otherwise, what should people know in terms of this idea of free trade and who it benefits if countries are often importing the same amount of the same category of foods as they are exporting? Like in reality, who are the ones yeah. doing that trade? Who gains and at the cost of whom or what? Yeah, I think, again, without demonizing the people in big corporations, we need to be really clear that the drivers of this system has been actually from the beginning global traders. And today, those global traders, we need to re remember that if we're talking about trade in money as well. We're talking about a system that pressured governments to open their doors have no controls over the value of their currencies and open their doors to import and export. So the pressure, and if you, if we need to look at what has to change, it is the, the freedom of giant corporations to essentially give the marching orders to our governments. And these, in many cases, we're talking about corporations that we don't even know the name of. We're talking about the financial casino that now operates at a speed that is incredibly dangerous. I was very pleased to recently hear an English economist, a mainstream economist, address this. I think once people really wake up to the role of a deregulated marketplace, both in terms of the import and export of identical food products, of you know, beef in, beef out, milk in, milk out, food being sent to the other side of the world to be processed, you know, from Australia, from Norway, from America, fish has been sent to China just to be processed, sent back again. This insanity and that trade is not discussed in the climate negotiations because the climate negotiations are essentially dominated by big business. Unfortunately, almost all the global negotiations, treaties, and so on have been more and more dominated by big business with governments essentially taking their orders from big business. We should remember that in 2008, when there was this enormous financial crash which destroyed the lives of millions of people, there was such a clear recognition that we need to regulate the banks, but we got the message, no, no, too big to fail. Now, what that meant was they're so big and powerful that we don't dare to challenge them. And this, again, is where you know I'm trying to encourage a sort of we mentality so that we, we realize that maybe with the exception of America, but for most countries to say, well, I'm going to take on this, what in effect is an interlinked empire of banks and corporations is very difficult. But if we as what I call big picture activists, you know, if we can get that picture out that, okay, get together with other countries. Let's have a situation where governments are pressured by 
those of us who are thinking about these things, to get back around the table, to discuss with other countries, how can we collectively start minimizing our dependence on these giants? How can we collectively strengthen our own genuine economic potential and rebuild the foundations of a living, healthy economy? Right now, we're threatened by this, as I say, high technology of blind men leading us into a metaverse where the actual living, where life itself is seen through a haze of numbers and fantasies about technology, fantasies about living forever, and it's based on a war machine of going off and fighting over scarce minerals on Mars and also in the deepest seabed and So we need to really be very clear about what the bigger picture is. So when we talk about contextualization, as I say, the role of technology, the role of genuine democracy in shaping the future is what we need to be thinking about. And we can start these discussions at the local level and start actually doing things at the local level that regenerate by the way, I don't want—I don't like using the word regeneration because it's been pushed by big business, but mm. that rebuild, renew, and yes, regenerate living systems, cooperative systems, and it means ultimately, you know, it's a cooperation between humans and the rest of life. Mm. There's so much in everything you just shared, and in terms of the technology piece, whenever I do a quick search for the word futuristic. I disproportionately receive results centered on automation, AI, robots, and these kind of grayish visuals devoid of plants and trees and the richness and colorful diversity of the more than human world. And I also think about the promise of automation to automate everything so that nobody needs to work anymore and we can just all have leisure time for our entire lives. First of all, that is not at all the trajectory that has been playing out as technological advancement has continued. I think primarily due to the incentives driving innovation, not that innovation or technology, not that they couldn't serve purposes of supporting our collective well-being, but yeah, just in the big picture, the increasingly fast pace of the world and of consumerism cycles and the increasing wealth gap, all of this have been leading most people to actually have to work more for less pay. So really puts that premise into question. But also, I genuinely am concerned about the spiritual aspect, as in my understanding is that people need a sense of purpose and connectedness to something greater than ourselves in order to feel fulfillment, to tend to community, to tend to each other, tend the land, to not create for the sake of creating, but to create with deeper intentions in mind. And then, of course, to care for and love and to be cared for and loved by real people and other living beings as well. But I wonder what other thoughts you might have on our spiritual crisis tethered to the dominant visions of futuristic and whether it's really kind of perhaps the over commodification of labor that lead to those acts 
losing their meaning. And not that a more joyous and liberated future means nobody needs to cook anymore, nobody needs to care for the land and farm, no one needs to watch their elders, no one needs to pack things or pack gifts for their friends and so forth. Obviously an exaggeration, but hopefully you see what I'm trying to get at. Yes, well, my, you know, amazing, amazing experience of living in a culture that was completely pre-industrial just forced me to see things so differently. So in Ladakh or West Tibet, where I lived for many, many years, well, over a 40-year period, and we're still, my organization is still working there, but it was this remarkable experience in the first few years of of speaking the language fluently and living with them and and experiencing how how gentle and how easy life was and experiencing people who were so at peace with themselves. There was this deep, relaxed self-esteem, self-acceptance. And of course, over many years, it took me a long time to realize how this could all you know, how it all fit together, because I was, I, even for years, I was sort of somehow thinking, well, actually, life is pretty hard. You know, it was quite, very cold in the winter. There was no heating. People carried things on their back, and it seemed hard. And yet, it was one of those experiences after several years where it was in the peak working season, which was the harvest season, and the snow could fall any time, so there was certain time pressure. And I was sitting with Ladakis during the harvest, and by the way, they would sing to the animals as they were threshing, they were singing as they were harvesting, and then there was a whistling tune when they were winnowing. And so there was all this singing going on and the and the whistling. And as it happened in the house next door, the monks were performing harvest ceremonies and their music with drums and horns and songs coming out. And there we were having a picnic, laughing, relaxed in the peak working season. And then some tourists come by taking photos and then they go off. And the Ladakh said to me, why are the tourists always in such a hurry? And that was one of those aha moments where I suddenly realized, yeah, it is remarkable that Ladakhis are never in a hurry. And that got me to see, you know, over the years, the amazing things that were happening. I was going back to Sweden, I was going back to America, and I was seeing literally before my eyes, every year life speeding up. Not to mention Ladakh, because in Ladakh, as the doors opened to the outside economy, life also started speeding up. Now, it's, yeah, there's so much to tell, but... I mean, one of the remarkable things that I've seen, maybe I can tell you, I mean, I've seen it, you know, in that ancient pre-industrial culture of Ladakh, where, yes, there was physical work and people did carry things on their back, but actually, on the whole, they were healthier than we are. They were infinitely happier than we are. And what I realize is all the things we care about take time. We want to be known for who we are. Once we get into these speedy relationships, fleeting relationships, and have far too many, none of them deep, we actually don't feel affirmed for who we are. We know that if someone 
thinks we're good looking or think we have a nice fancy car or fancy home or flashy anything, we know we're not really being appreciated for who we are. It becomes a more and more lonely and and deeply actually traumatic identity, traumatized identities. I mean, not to mention, you know, the fundamental thing of being breastfed and being held as a baby. But it's not just that. That's not enough to to satisfy for our lives. We need deeper ongoing relationships with others. We need them with animals. We need them with the plants, with life around us. So technology has been speeding life up. I've seen these dramatic changes in Ladakh. I've seen a culture where there was depression didn't exist. They could not understand when I tried to explain that in the West we had doctors who were actually dealing with our mental and emotional problems, could not comprehend. Suicide was something that might have happened one in a generation. Now it's at least one a month, and it's mainly young people. I've seen in Sweden, as the doors of the global economy opened up more and more to the outside products, the destruction of the local economy, shifting people, you know, in Ladakh, in Sweden, also in Spain, and these are places where I've lived for long periods, but I've also lived in America. So in all those places, I've seen very clearly what happens to people as the fabric of community and connection breaks down, and as there are more and more pressures that, as I say, destroy that local fabric. And then when that's accompanied by immigration, which in Ladakh and Bhutan, in very traditional places, was also an issue. Because what the system does is to pull in people from the periphery who are not yet as urbanized or industrialized. So in the case of Ladakh it was, and Bhutan, it was people from Nepal who had already been driven, driven out of their villages and who were poorer, who were coming in to do the, the work that now people who were getting advanced in the economy weren't doing. And that led to terrible prejudice, even bloodshed. So I think we, yeah, we need to look at this, the mobility of people. We need to look at the mobility of goods and how it's all linked to an extractive economy. And we need to look at why people are being uprooted, both within the industrialized world, but also across the globe. Mm. I mean, it really just sounds like a lot of this fabricated and later on realized scarcity and fears of scarcity and loss of belonging, it kind of pits a lot of people against each other oh, and yeah. leads people to blame things that they otherwise may not have turned against, if that makes sense. And yeah, so these conversations are really eye-opening in the sense that they help us to take a step back and look at the bigger picture of what is really going on. What is it that's driving all of these different forms of exclusion and discrimination? Because there are bigger things behind that. Yeah, and again, it's so much to do. Well, it's just it's everything to do with it economic system, remembering that that is, you know, the investments, it's the infrastructure that's built up, and it's the media, it's the marketing of an urban consumer culture that tells 
people all around the world that they are no good the way they are. So we're talking about even so-called quite privileged people in the West who are sort of locked into a nuclear family and the images, television, media, and so on, romanticize the life that we're meant to lead and they feel that they're not living up to that and they're not able to share with others their fears, their fact that one of their children may be trouble, that someone might have an eating disorder, that the husband gets drunk at night, whatever, because they're locked into this tiny nuclear family where inside the four walls is where people know what's going on. Outside of that, you know, there has to be a smile and everything has to look perfect. We're not allowed to be vulnerable. We're not allowed to be imperfect. So I do want to say that it's very encouraging that people intuitively around the world are developing ways of dealing with this. You know, they're developing, you know, women's circles, you know, men's circles, sitting in circle and beginning to share, beginning to be able to be vulnerable. And there, there's also, as you know, this huge increase in nature connection as an absolutely healing and essential, you know, way of recovering our humanity. So both the reconnection to others and to nature is happening. And I think, you know, what we've just talked about now sounds quite overwhelming and negative. And yet I'm so much more positive than most of my colleagues, uh, especially, I guess, my age. People seem to have lost their faith in humanity. And and of course they have, because the dominant narrative makes it seem as though we're seeing all this destruction because people are too greedy. People don't want to let go of their car. They're just wanting to consume more. We're not hearing the real story. That's not what's happening. You know, that is documented by economists. People are not actually buying more cars. People are actually poorer. And we're talking about an increase in poverty now up to the even upper middle class in the industrialized world. And we have to look at, as you said earlier, it's about how many hours we work a day or a week to put food on the table, to have a roof over our head. We are poorer and poorer and poorer. And yet, because big business locked into blind growth agenda is dominating the narratives, not just in the media, but also in science and in in academia. So we're getting this completely false picture. So people are losing faith in humanity and becoming quite depressed and, and hopeless. Whereas what I'm seeing is that there is this intuitive waking up everywhere I look, I see evidence that people actually want that reconnection with others. Of course, everybody wants to have more time to look after their children, to look after themselves, to have connection with nature. And of course, no one actually wants this mega urbanized existence that the algorithms and our blind leaders are pushing us into. Every day, you know, the the farmers are having a harder time surviving. What is happening also is the antidote, is the local food movement where people are connecting with the farmers and 
shifting things around so that they can earn 90% of what we spend, whereas in the supermarket they only get 10%. And so there's counter-movement, again, fundamentally about localizing, is showing that it's another way forward and showing that people want to move in that direction. Mm. And hopefully with the spread of alternative narratives, with the increasing deep sense of dissatisfaction and lack of fulfillment and exhaustion that a lot of people are experiencing, people will be inspired to not attribute those troubles to the wrong sources, but be invited to yeah, come together and share those with each other so we can have more imaginative ideas of how we can work towards that shared collective more uh, vibrant future together. And whenever I bring the topics that we just discussed to people who typically aren't tuned into these conversations and haven't really been exposed to alternative narratives, I often hear this remark that we can't go backwards. And that leads me to believe that a lot of us have been so deeply indoctrinated by this idea that advancement means growing the economy. It means development as defined in these very monolithic top-down ways. It means automation and so forth, that we don't even stop to think about what all of that might mean for our human and human level senses of joy, fulfillment, connection, well-being, and sense of aliveness. And I think a lot of this is rooted in language too, like what growth has been centered on, how progress and advancement have been portrayed and determined, what efficiency refers to. And even as Charles Eisenstein questioned in our past conversation, and you put quotations around this word earlier too, so even how the word privilege, which suggests being better off, is defined, and the values that that implicitly reinforces. And to this point, I actually am realizing that I don't love the term subsistence living or subsistence communities, because it kind of portrays them as only having the bare minimum of just getting by, which really isn't true at all when we consider all of the riches and relationships that a lot of these communities are so incredibly wealthy in. But in in any case, I would love for you to address this idea that we can't go backwards, as well as our need to shift our cultural stories and language and worldviews so that we can reorient ourselves towards an advancement that actually aligns with our growth of our collective well-being. Yeah, I also would just like to say that we hope that if people hear an alternative narrative, or you may be plural, alternative narratives, that they won't assign blame in the way they do now. And this is what's so tragic, is that the blame that's being assigned, you know, as you know, so often to the outsider, to the immigrants, to the people who are different. As people become more and more fearful, difference becomes such a threat. People are also blaming themselves because the dominant narrative, you know, particularly I'm talking um, middle-class people in the West who are being told that it's their fault that people are poor on the other side of the world. It's their fault that the climate is continuing to become unstable because they're selfish and greedy. There's also this deep self-blame as people feel Yeah, they're told by the environmental movement it's all their fault, and then they feel guilty that they're not spending more time with their children, that they're not looking after their parents better. So it's tragic to see that. I also see 
a tendency for people to blame their own culture. So when I'm in Sweden or when I'm here, you know, they say, well, it's because here in Australia we are like this or it's because we're in Sweden we're like that. Actually, when you look at it globally, the problem comes back to this global system that started with slavery. And it's, you know, it got this big ride. It got this huge support after the Second World War when governments sat around this table at Bretton Woods and they set up the World Bank, the IMF, and the trade treaties through something called the GATT. And they were convinced that in order to avoid another world war, in order to avoid another depression, we needed to integrate economic activity worldwide. Now, what that meant was giving these giants the privilege of going in and out. And of course, those leaders, they weren't looking at that that meant destroying the local businesses that inevitably were more adapted to the diversity of ecosystems and diversity of cultures. Anyway, I'm, I'm deviating now from your your question, because I, I think the question about going back to the past is so important and it's really difficult for me. You know, what I would like to say is that I see this huge potential for a path forward where we liberate the human race to become more creative, more productive, where artisan production for every one of our basic needs, food, clothing, shelter, artisan production, meaning very small-scale machinery and hands involved in the work, in growing the food and having the, the sort of mixed farming we need, that everywhere in the world, from the drylands to the wetlands, the diversity means that we can be more productive. We can actually get more out of the land. That needs more people. Building houses with a group of people using local natural materials. It may sound just too unrealistic for most people who are so, you know, urbanized, industrialized now that, the, that this may just sound too unrealistic. But I'm seeing this happening in the localization movement, which includes, you know, the permaculture movement, the transition time movement, so on, where people are doing this. I'm seeing beauty, I'm seeing joy, I'm seeing, you know, intergenerational collaboration that occurs much more naturally when you're able to work this way, without the huge dangerous machinery, without the noise from it, and, you know, and again, my view of this, of course, comes from Ladakh, where, as I was telling you during the harvest season, there was all that singing going on. And I remember once having started a letter back to the West to say, this year in Ladakh was particularly enjoyable because there was construction going on on our house. So we lived in a big old farmhouse with the Ladakhi family downstairs and we were upstairs and there was construction going on and then I realized how insane that would sound anywhere in the industrialized world but it was because people were coming up bringing mud bricks to the to the roof above singing as they were doing it and as it happened when I was writing that letter there was also harvesting and the, the monks in the chapel and it was just this amazing joyous sound all around. So 
from that, I've seen how much easier it is if we have more people doing things. If you almost anything like, you know, out gardening, building a house, doing the laundry, even cooking, looking after children, all of these things are so much more enjoyable when you're doing it as a group. And that's how we evolved. That's how we managed to evolve on this planet for tens of thousands of years, being, you know, replaced by machines, isolated from each other, and appendages to the machines creates then this monocultural world where, you know, the houses become, you know, identical, the materials are more and more dead. The soul in a mud brick house, the health of the mud brick house in terms of being warmer in the winter, cooler in the summer, and so completely different from a cement house. Another thing with this, which will probably sound crazy, is that we introduced solar energy and made changes that brought in some of the modern ways of doing things. And we discovered then how in the traditional situation, every single window was different from every other window because it was handmade. There wasn't that sort of assumption that everything had to be standardized. So when you would see a traditional carved balcony or something on these houses, they were so beautiful. And I came to realize afterwards it was because actually none of the window panes were identical. In other words, they mirrored that incredible diversity of life. And so, so much of what we think of as beauty, you would call imperfection in this industrial mechanical way of looking at the world. But of course, that is the, the, the mystery, the richness, the unending richness of the living world. So when we produce things in a more artisan way, when the clothing is actually made to fit your body, it's not been prefabricated and it's in a size 12 or a size 14, it's actually to fit your body. And maybe one shoulder is a bit lower than the other one, maybe, you know, whatever. That adaptation to the diversity brings greater beauty and greater satisfaction. Now, what we need to recognize is that here we are after about, you know, well, let's say a couple of hundred years of this really mechanistic, monocultural, top-down system, and it's about 500 years since the beginnings of this Western culture uh, reaching across the world and starting to impose the monoculture. But we're only talking a few hundred years, whatever. And we really do need to step back and question, and we really do need to look at how industrial agriculture has been a disaster from beginning to end. I'm now arguing that industrial architecture and engineering has been a disaster. I'm arguing that industrial production of the clothes we need is also in no way increasing in any way the well-being of ecosystems or people. But it's very, you know, it's challenging a lot of people's imagination, I think. But we need to understand we have an overabundant, absolutely overabundant renewable energy, which is human beings. And I would argue that one of the main reasons we are locked into or let's say our leaders are locked into a path of 
anti-life and I would say ultimately total well it won't destroy life all of life but it will it will ultimately destroy itself because it cannot work but this anti-life system is based on raping more and more of the living resources and people to impose an artificial deadly system that is anti-life and the main reason is but everywhere in the world human labor is too expensive for us we can't afford ourselves if you and i want to build a house if we wanted to have it with you know artisans and people helping to build that house only a few billionaires are doing that now can't afford it we have to use mass-produced materials again materials that have been transported for thousands of miles often we're trapped in a system where subsidies taxes and regulations make human life and us ourselves too expensive for ourselves wow i personally love and really resonate with this dream because it also points back to my train of thought earlier just about questioning what liberated futures actually mean and whether it's really driven by automation or otherwise it could be liberated futures where everything we do actually contributes to building relationships and building joy and meaning so not meaningless mass production just churning things out but artisanal creations that strengthen community and also makes life more beautiful and yeah, just no longer work, but everything becoming acts of love and care and creativity. And in a sense, I would say that advancement as it's currently defined with people becoming appendages to machines, as you said, it's kind of driving dehumanization and a simplification of how we engage in with the world and what it means to be human. So I don't know, I think I'm more interested in realizing futures where people can turn everything into passion projects and acts of love and creativity. We're doing things because I'm cooking because I want to cook for these people that I love. I am helping build this building because it's going to house my community. You know, just having every act become something that builds something deeper, builds intimacy and relationships in a community. And I know that's idealistic too, but hey, just going to put it out there. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I also just want to say that in both traditional Ladakh and in Bhutan and another, I would say that in traditional cultures, as well as in the permaculture movement and in the eco-village movement, I'm also seeing how that slower pace of building houses, of growing food with people around you, is so suited to intergenerational collaboration. The mm. children, the older people are all there, and the children are learning from the elders. There's a continual process of learning and teaching. So there's, there's so many other aspects to this that have to do with really flourishing well-being. And one of them we do have to think about is how the, this industrialized urban life, what it does, even, even just the fast cars coming, the danger for children, the danger for old people, even crossing the street, all of that plays into a whole way of life that is either, you know, more fearful, more dangerous, more anonymous, or a way of life that is slower and, and more enjoyable for all generations. But I do also want to say, I think in connection with this artisanal future 
that I experienced in Ladakh that it would be entirely possible to bring in some genuinely decentralized renewable energy technologies to create a significant layer of greater comfort, a bit more distance from nature, a way of, of having a little bit more heating, more cooling, and reducing some of the labor where it might not be desirable. Entirely possible to do that without destroying the earth. And I think probably, you know, most of us who have tasted both the really traditional way of life and the modern life, we'd probably choose to have a bit of a middle ground like that. I'm sort of torn in the sense that I've always said that I would without a doubt choose to be reborn as a traditional Ladakhi rather than being, you know, reborn in this Western system. But having having lived with greater comfort and so on, I did find the lack of heating in the winter in Ladakh, in Ladakh very difficult. But as I say, there is a very, very clear trajectory forward where we could make use of certain technologies. But I don't think we will find that we're going to need this level of top-down mega systems that the internet has heralded and now AI is bringing in. I think we're going to find that we need to subjugate technology to more genuinely democratic scrutiny and that that actually these technologies don't lend themselves to that. So there are people who are becoming alarmed now about the role of AI and I think very rightly so. One more thing I'd like to say about technology is that Right now, at the level where we are today, let's make use of the technologies we have to communicate a, a bigger picture, to communicate the truth of what's going on in, in the world. And, you know, we use these technologies now, as you and I are doing, talking on, on uh, Zoom, to share the message that we would all be better off if we could make less use of the internet, be less dependent on our mobile phone. And so I'm, I'm hoping that people can see the nuanced conversation of saying, yeah, these technologies are there, they're being used often to expand this global empire that is so destructive, but we can use them to share information to try to bring about this U-turn that we want, the U-turn towards a better balance between human beings and the natural world and technologies is mediating, uh, should be a mediating force between humans and the natural world. Right now, we are all being subjugated by a system where we've allowed economic priorities and technology to dominate us. Once these technologies would be subjugated, I think we would want to reduce the speed. I think we would want to ensure that many of them are used primarily for communication that is necessary, not for everyday communication. So I'm thinking particularly, you know, now for emergencies, climate upheavals and so on, the speedy communication can be very important. So there's a, there's a complex path forward in terms of finding the balance that we ultimately want. 
And one more thing I'd like to say is that where we are right now, we should be voting no to 5G. We should be voting no to allowing governments and big business to speed things up even more. Who needs the greater speed? Where is it going to be beneficial? What is it actually going to do to our lives? It is about supporting driverless cars. It is about supporting a mega urbanization that humanity clearly doesn't want. But unfortunately, there is often not clarity about what are the forces and mechanisms that are increasing urbanization. And certainly 5G is one of them. What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow? For me, one of the most was Small is Beautiful, very important book by, by Schumacher. And I was involved in, in helping to set up a college by that name to Schumacher College in, in England. And his book was Small is Beautiful and, yeah, very close to my heart, and interestingly enough, he was a mainstream economist whose thinking was transformed because he went to Burma in the 1960s and found there, too, a culture where poverty and unemployment didn't exist. Mm. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice that you engage with to stay grounded? My practice is to try every day to walk in nature and remind myself how much is still alive and flourishing and how much there is still of the beauty, the joy, the mystery of the living world. It's, it's, my, it's my church. Mm. And finally, what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? Well, again, it is, it is nature, but it's also the almost every day getting messages of people who feel that our holistic view and our faith in humanity, our emphasis on deep reconnection, the deep reconnection to others, very importantly to other human beings, but also to the rest of life, how healing that is, and that when we approach that in a more conscious, structural way, it is about meeting face-to-face. -face. And that means, again, local. It's real experiential knowledge and connection that happens at the local level. So the path that we're encouraging, people are finding very helpful. And there are so many inspiring examples from around the world. And I get I get that feedback almost every day, and that inspires me and keeps me going. Mm. 
Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but to learn more from Local Futures, you can head to their website at localfutures.org. And we'll have more references from this episode linked in our show notes at greendreamer.com. For now, Helena, thank you so much for joining me on Green Dreamer for round two. Um, it's been an honor to welcome you back here. What final words of wisdom would you like to leave us with as Green Dreamers? I guess the, I guess I would urge you to keep reminding people that the green dreaming is also dreaming of human well-being and joy. And I worry that people who are just struggling like anything, more and more people are struggling to just put food on the table and have a roof over their head, and they can perceive green as something that's going to take something away from them. So it's really important that when we when with our green dreaming that we really remind people of this is about their health, their joy, their well-being, their families, their relationships, this what they really care about. If you learned from or feel inspired by this conversation, we would so appreciate your support through a donation of any amount today at greendreamer.com slash support. As it stands, we cannot continue our show beyond this year, but if every listener committed to chipping in just $2 a month, we would reach our fundraising goals in no time and be able to sustainably continue producing our podcast while remaining untethered to corporate interests. You can also help us out a lot by submitting a five-star review in the podcast app and sharing your favorite episodes out with your loved ones. Our song feature today is Drop the Stone by Oro Pendola. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our supporting researcher is Anissa Sima Holly. Our production manager is Emma Jeffrey. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you soon in the next episode. 